On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Taylor Sear about compatibilism, free will, manipulation, and more. So we cover topics like just what is compatibilism? What are the potential largest objections to it? Uh, What is the history of Frankfurt cases and how have they played into the influence of compatibilism? What does it mean to be manipulated? Does manipulation undermine free will? And much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think just generally, we want to think well, and we think, uh, I guess using the word think here, a lot, of, a lot, but we do want to think with particular virtues. So we've tried to develop an intellectual culture of sorts that's promoting charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism altogether. I think we've seen in the wider culture and the wider, I guess, theological, philosophical spectrum, these aren't always virtues that are expressly pursued. So we, we've wanted to create conversations that are hopefully promoting these types of things so that we can learn and think together in an environment that is encouraging, uplifting, upbuilding, but still critical at the same time. With that, I'm interested and really looking forward to to introduce you all to Dr. Taylor Sear. Now he's, I don't know what the perfect title is, it's if it's assistant or associate or whatever professor at Samford University in philosophy. And I think We're going to talk about manipulation arguments. We're going to talk about compatibilism, free will, all those types of things. I think, you know, when I grew up, at least personally, when I became a Calvinist at some point, became more reformed, it seemed like there were no philosophers doing anything from my little puny vantage point (laughs) as far as like reformed accounts of free will. And it, it almost seemed like a complete gap. And even as I continued to grow, it seemed like everybody just assumed especially in the philosophical community, that the default position was incompatibilism, uh, libertarian free will. And yet we've got Dr. Sear here who is defending a more reformed account of compatibilism and everything. So I, I think this is great. I think a lot of our listeners are interested in this subject and are interested in finding people who are doing serious, legitimate, scholarly, academic work in this area. And it's not just like a little pamphlet on the five points of Calvinism. It's legit philosophy in this area. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Before we do all that, though, why, why don't you introduce our listeners to who you are, just a little bit of background, and then what is it that got you into this topic in particular? Sure. And thank you both for having me. Um, as Jordan said, my name is Taylor Sear, and I'm a philosopher. I teach at Samford University, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I'm originally from Florida. I grew up in Orlando. I uh, went to Florida State. Um as an undergrad and stuck around for a master's degree. And during that time, I got interested in the philosophy of free will. Um, in high school, starting to think through my own Christian theology for myself, grew up in a Christian home, but sort of making it my own in high school, uh, started reading John Piper and other, you know, similar popular theologians who got me thinking about reformed theology in particular. And so I was kind of interested in free will even then, but through God's providence, ended up at Florida State, which is a great program for the philosophy of action, including free will and 
moral responsibility. So I was able to work uh, under Al Mealy uh, on my master's degree and then went uh, to the University of California, Riverside for my PhD to work with uh, John Martin Fisher, who's a very prominent uh, compatibilist. Uh, we'll, I'll say more about his position later, I'm sure. Um, so I got my PhD in 2018 from uh, UC Riverside and then taught for a year at Washington University in St. Louis. And then the year, a year later in 2019 came to uh, Sanford University, been here the last couple of years. Um, teach a, a kind of a variety of classes from history of philosophy to metaphysics to ethics courses, um, interested in kind of every area of philosophy. And, you know, other than my theological background, one of the things that's been attractive to me about working on free will is free will overlaps with almost every other area of philosophy. You get into ethics, but also epistemology and metaphysics and language, really every area of philosophy. So it's been great to get into the philosophy of free will. I don't, you know, as a, a reformed Christian, I'm of course very interested in the connection between the philosophy and, and my theology, but I'm, I'm not, I don't have theological training. So um, my, my work has mainly been from the philosophical kind of point of view. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and, and dive right into this discussion. Um, let's begin with an overview of compatibilism, but we probably shouldn't assume anything. So maybe um, set that, and I'm sure you probably will, but just set that within some other terms that maybe folks may not be familiar with, like determinism, indeterminism, mm -hmm. libertarianism. What do all those words mean? And then how, to, how does compatibilism relate to those? Yeah. When you get into the free will literature, it's like you need a glossary <laughs> to get started <laughs> because there's so many new terms. But yeah, compatibilism is a thesis about compatibility, as the name suggests. And the basic idea is that free will and determinism are compatible with each other. So we'll need to say more about what those two terms mean, free will and determinism. But it's worth noting kind of right off, you know, right off the bat, a lot of people sort of presuppose incompatibilism. They, they present the free will debate as a debate about whether we have free will or whether determinism is true. You might hear people say free will versus determinism, which it, interestingly just presupposes one of the, you know, most contentious parts of the free will debate, whether or not free will is compatible with determinism. Anyway, so um, free will um, is used by some philosophers as a term of art to refer to a certain kind of control or ability, often um, connected with our powers as agents, beings who perform actions, who act in the world. Uh, but recently, the, the way of kind of making sure that we're not talking past each other, we're all using the, the word free will, those words to mean the same thing, is by defining it functionally and connecting it to moral responsibility. So the idea here is free will is whatever kind of freedom or control is required for us to be morally responsible for what we do. And it might be that there's more required for us to be morally responsible. That is, you know, praiseworthy, blameworthy, really accountable for what we do. Uh, might be that more is required than just control, but free will is focused on this metaphysical or control condition on moral responsibility. And then determinism, also a tricky term to get your mind around, and often people use the term to mean different things. But in the philosophical literature on free will, determinism is usually taken to be a thesis like this. Given, if determinism is true, then given the way the world was in the distant past, and given the laws of nature, there's only one way that the future relative to that past time can unfold from there. So sometimes um, people will say determinism is the thesis that there's only one physically possible future. 
which is to say, given the laws of physics and given the state of the world now, there's only one way that things can unfold uh, from here. And when you hear that, you hear this idea of determinism, it off, for a lot of people, it is natural to think, well, that would preclude freedom because we often think of free will as involving the freedom to do otherwise than what we actually do. Something like, you know, uh, branching or forking paths. Um, and it seems like determinism precludes that. But there's debate about that, as there is in every area of philosophy. So um, the main camps in the free will debate are compatibilists and incompatibilists. But there's, of course, you know, uh, more fine grains of way, more fine grain ways of breaking up uh, the camps. Um, for our purposes, it's worth mentioning that among incompatibilists, some are libertarians. Those are people who think free will is incompatible with determinism, and yet we have free will. It's got to involve indeterminacy at some point, but we have free will, even though it's incompatible with determinism. And then the other kind of incompatibilist, they're sometimes called hard incompatibilist or free will skeptics, people who think we don't have free will and we're not morally responsible, at least in a certain sense, uh, for what we do. So those are the main positions, compatibilists and incompatibilists, and then within the incompatibilist camp, the, the pro-free will incompatibilists and the no-free will incompatibilists. Yeah, it, it seems to me, at least in the theologi theological literature and everything, there's a lot of confusion over these different categories. It's almost like they don't have the different types of categories for whether it's compatibilism or incompatibilism. It's almost, for them, it's compatibilism means a libertarian account married to determinism, which to me seems like you can't, you can't do That's just not possible. Yeah, that's not, not one of the I, options. Right. Not without equivocating on yeah. something, I think. Yeah. So I think this is, this is really helpful. So let, let me think now, what are the biggest objections to compatible compatibilism in particular? I know there's, you know, probably biblical text examples, but I, I don't want to go there. I, I want to talk about the philosophical stuff. What's the mm -hmm. reasons that someone would say, as a philosopher, there's problems with a compatibilist account? Yeah, great. The There are kind of two main families of arguments that I take to be the main objections to compatibilism in the philosophical literature. And interestingly, the first is connected to a worry about divine foreknowledge. It's a structurally similar argument to incompatibilism about divine omniscience and human free will. Um, and the second one is closely related to worries about divine determinism at the manipulation argument. So I'll talk through both of those. So the first um, of the two main families of arguments is sometimes called the consequence argument. And the basic idea is that, look, if determinism is true, then what we do now is the inevitable consequence of the way the world was in the distant past and what the laws of nature are. But you know, it's not up to us what the world was like in the distant past, say before there were any humans. Uh, it's not up to us what the laws of nature are. Those things, ha we have no control on those over those things. They don't depend on us at all. And so it looks like if what we do is the inevitable consequence of these things that aren't up to us, well, then what we do isn't really up to us either. And so we don't have free will. So there are different ways of spelling out the consequence argument, some more formal than that, most more formal than that. But that's the basic idea. And there are compatibilists who think that argument is unsound, that there's a false premise or it involves um, uh, an inference rule that's invalid. In any case, the 
conclusion is false, some compatibilists say. But I actually think that that's a very good argument, at, at least if we're thinking of the freedom that the argument calls into question as the freedom to do otherwise than what we actually do. It does seem to me that, um, and I actually think the same thing about divine foreknowledge, but we can set that aside uh, for this uh, discussion. I, I think if determinism is true, it does uh, call into question whether we're actually free to do otherwise than what we actually do. And so in my view, the way to go as a compatibilist is to say, well, even if determinism is true, and even if that precludes alternative possibilities, the freedom to do otherwise, it could be that we're still uh, the, the sort of appropriate source of our behavior such that we are accountable for what we do, that we're morally responsible for what we do, despite lacking the freedom to do otherwise. So this, now we're getting into more of those fine-grained positions in the free will debate. Among compatibilists, one big division is those who think we need a certain kind of leeway. We need the freedom to do otherwise in order to be morally responsible. And then compatibilists uh, like, like me who think, well, actually, we don't need that leeway. What matters is that we're the appropriate sources of our behavior. Um, yeah, so since one way of responding to the consequence argument is by you know denying that the freedom to do otherwise is necessary for um, moral responsibility, maybe it's worth, before getting into the manipulation argument, talking about some of the motivations for a source compatibilist view. I don't know if that sounds good to you all. Yeah, no, that's good. good. Yeah. So the the main way in the philosophical literature in the last 50 or 60 years, um, the main way to motivate a, a source position has been to appeal to certain kinds of thought experiments where a, an agent lacks the freedom to do otherwise. They lack alternative possibilities, and yet they still seem like they're morally responsible for what they do. It still seems like they are, um, they have the control or freedom in acting that's required for moral responsibility. So um, these kinds of cases have been around for longer, but they've become really popular since the publication of this paper by Harry Frankfurt in 1969 called Alternate Possibilities and Moral Responsibility. And in that paper, Frankfurt gives a case that's now you know, cited all over the place, widely discussed, where an agent performs an action. Let's say it's the action of making a decision. And it could be a decision about something important, like maybe which political candidate to vote for. You can pick any action, any decision about an action uh, that you want. But what's happened, and this agent doesn't know about it, what's happened is this evil neuroscientist has implanted a chip in this guy's brain so that he can monitor his deliberative activity. And if there's any sign that he is going to do otherwise than what he's actually going to do, then this uh, neuroscientist will press a button and will override the agent's decision, uh, decision-making power, will force him to decide the way that he wants. So let's make it a little bit more concrete. Imagine that um, the, the guy's name is Jones. That's uh, the name that Frankfurt gives. Uh, the guy's name is Jones, and this neuroscientist wants him to decide to vote for candidate A rather than candidate B. And so Jones is in the voting booth, and he's still making up his mind about which candidate to vote for. And as he's deliberating, this neuroscientist is monitoring his device, and he sees that there's no sign that Jones is going to vote for candidate B. Looks like he's going to vote for candidate A. And so the neuroscientist doesn't activate the device. Jones deliberates and then decides to vote for candidate A on his own. In that case, it looks like Jones is morally responsible for deciding to vote for candidate A. Even though this neuroscientist was monitoring his deliberative activity, 
he didn't intervene in the process at any point. He didn't influence Jones's decision. He didn't influence what reasons came to mind. He didn't press the button to force him to make one decision rather than the other. He just precluded alternative possibilities for Jones. And if it seems to you like he is responsible uh, for deciding to vote for candidate A, and it also seems like he couldn't have done otherwise than decide to vote for candidate A, well, then it looks like a person could be morally responsible for something despite lacking alternative possibilities or despite lacking the freedom to do otherwise. So the way this is connected up with um, the consequence argument that I was just talking about was is as follows. Uh, the consequence argument's conclusion is, uh, if determinism is true, then we don't have the freedom to do otherwise than we actually do. And that seems like it's a threat to moral responsibility only if moral responsibility requires the freedom to do otherwise. And, you know, there's a name for this principle, and I, I've seen several theologians uh, refer to it. Uh, it's the principle of alternative possibilities, or PAP for short. Um, there's some confusion about how to work out, how to spell out this principle in, in some of the literature. But the basic idea is that there's this connection between uh, moral responsibility and the ability to do otherwise or the freedom to do otherwise. And it's that very principle that Frankfurt style cases, as they've come to be called, uh, calls into question. I've talked for a, uh, a good bit now about the consequence argument in Frankfurt style cases. What, what do you all think? Do you have questions about any of that? I think part of the question that comes through with some of the stuff, the consequence argument and all these things, we had, I think, Roger Turner on the podcast, I don't know how long ago. He's got a paper on what he calls Rule A, where he's basically arguing if it's metaphysically necessary that P, we may validly infer that no one is even partly morally responsible for the fact that P. Mm -hmm. This seems to have a significant part of the debate as far as, I guess, moral responsibility goes <laughs> and what all that looks like. So I, I don't know if you want to, it seems that that objection lodges with the first objection rather than the divine manipulation stuff, mm -hmm. if, if I'm thinking about it right. So maybe, you, can you talk to me a little bit about that one? Yeah. Yeah. I listened to your episode with uh, Roger, like when you first released it, but I'm forgetting if you talked about the argument that Rule A features in. I'm sure you did, because he's written a lot on this and his, yeah. his stuff is great. Um, highly recommend it. Um, so the argument that Rule A... Um, is sort of an inference rule that's employed in is a it's a variant of the consequence argument but it's called the direct argument because it tries to show that from the truth of determinism moral responsibility is precluded directly mm -hmm. instead of appealing to this intermediate step of the principle of alternative possibilities and uh yeah the one of the inference rules rule a um infers non-responsibility from broad logical necessity now, nothing we've said so far, either about determinism or about the sort of inability to do otherwise in a Frankfurt style case is anything like broad logical necessity. So it is a little bit uh, of sort of separate argument, separate point. But uh, I, do, I do have a paper arguing for the very, uh, uh, very counterintuitive uh, claim that uh, rule A is invalid <laughs> and that you can be morally responsible for broad logical necessities. Um, <laughs> We don't need to go into the details there, but um, <laughs> if people are interested in kind of tracking down that debate, they should read Roger's stuff and then also see my uh, objection to Rule A. Awesome. Yeah. So just to summarize, make make sure I'm yeah, make sure I'm I'm with you. You're you're perfectly fine with just saying okay, we don't have 
um, the, this principle of alternative uh, possibilities. We, we can't do otherwise. So you're okay with not even um, – you don't want to waste your time, I guess, arguing against the consequence argument. Is that right? You, you're, you're fine with just moving yeah. on ahead and saying we can't do otherwise, but we still are morally responsible. Uh, and I think part of right. that is probably yeah. probably because of these these Frankfurt cases. So, um, so I guess that turns us to this second argument, which is the manipulation argument. And I think this, particularly for Christians, um, is probably something that um, well for Reformed Christians who are going to need to hold to something like compatibilism to try to be consistent. I think this is something we should um, care a lot about. So, walk us through the manipulation argument, and then. Um, Tell us what it what is it, what does it mean to be manipulated, and what is your response? Sure, yeah. So the word manipulated and manipulation is is kind of tricky because we use it in a lot of different ways in ordinary language. We can talk about someone influencing us, uh, especially if they do it in a way we're not really aware of as a form of manipulation. So I, I don't really know what the word manipulation means, but I'll, I will say this is how it's used in um, the literature. Well, there's other literature on manipulation in philosophy, especially in, in um, uh, other branches of ethics. But in the literature on on free will, what uh, a manipulation case is one where someone's values or their character or their desires have somehow been um, created or influenced um, by some other agent without the manipulated agent's knowledge. So you can think of it this way. Um, instead of like holding a gun to someone's head and telling them, you know, do what I want you to do, hand over your wallet or else, instead of coercing, the way that manipulation works is by getting someone to do something by implanting in them the desire to do that thing in the first place. And in the at least clear cases of manipulation in the literature, this implanting of the new desire, the new value happens without the manipulate the manipulated agent's knowledge. Usually it's like overnight by one of these evil neuroscientists uh, that frequent philosophical uh, thought experiments. Uh, and so it's a form of controlling another agent covertly and without constraining them or coercing them. It's by implanting in them the, the desire to do the thing that you want them to do. Uh, the, the first versions of these cases that showed up in the free will literature um, were used as objections to particular versions of compatibilism. So like, you know, I mentioned Harry Frankfurt's 1969 paper. He has another paper that's been very influential from 1971 called Freedom of the Will and the Concept of a Person. And in it, he lays out his view about what it is to be morally responsible, to have a certain kind of freedom required for moral responsibility. And it's come to be known as a kind of mesh view where what matters is that um, not only is the agent um, um, do, acting on one of their desires, but they have this second order, higher order desire that this desire to perform the action be effective. There's a kind of mesh. It's not like they're they're acting against their better judgment or anything like that. They're really doing what they want to do. It's maybe an expression of their real self. But, and you probably anticipated this, it seems that you could, if you were one of these neuroscientists, implant in someone not only the desire to, say, go perform some crime, but also the second order desire that that desire to perform the crime be effective. And so it seems like, it, you know, 
if you're a compatibilist, you think free will is compatible with determinism. It seems like, well, a neuroscientist could um, influence an agent, create the character or values that they want in an agent, um, setting them up to go perform a certain action in a way that maybe is even deterministic. If free will is compatible with determinism, it seems like, well, maybe it should be compatible with these forms of manipulation. And yet, here's the real problem. Looks like manipulated agents aren't free, aren't morally responsible. When we hear about some, if, if you heard about someone who had been uh, manipulated, you know, without their knowledge overnight by one of these neuroscientists, and they went and did some horrible thing the next day, m- most of us are inclined to say they're not really blameworthy for that. You know, maybe someone else is, maybe not. But in any case, that person is, is off the hook. So yeah, the first manipulation cases were like that, just targeting particular compatibilist accounts. Especially Frankfurt's took a lot of heat in the 80s and, and, and 90s. Um, yeah, but now since then, the, this worry about manipulation for particular compatibilist accounts has been regimented into an argument um, against compatibilism itself, the compatibility thesis, that free will and determinism are compatible. And the way that works is by saying, not only is, you know, we start with a case where an agent is manipulated into performing some action, not only are they not morally responsible, but there's no relevant difference when it comes to moral responsibility between a manipulated agent and an agent who's determined in the, you know, non-manipulated way. So the idea is start reflecting on what it is about a manipulation scenario that seems to take away moral responsibility, right? Probably it's something like, Uh, The person's acting from a character that they had no control over, or maybe more generally, they are performing some action that um, is a sort of uh, uh, inevitable consequence of factors beyond their control. But of course, if you think um, moral responsibility is compatible with determinism, that's a problem for you because it looks like in an ordinary deterministic world, even if no one's setting it up or manipulating you overnight to perform an action, it looks like still the character that you're acting from ultimately traces back to factors beyond your control that you had no say over. And so there's different versions of this argument. Um, Dirk Paraboom has a very famous version of the manipulation argument called the four case argument, where he starts with really hands-on manipulation and then moves progressively through less hands-on manipulation scenarios until he gets to an ordinary deterministic world. And he says, there's no relevant difference between any of these cases. And so we should say no responsibility in any of them, including uh, ordinary deterministic worlds, which undermines compatibilism if it works. Um, if I can talk about one more version of the argument, the one that I, I like, it's related to one of um, Dirk Paraboom's cases, but um, Al Mealy has a version of the manipulation argument called the zygote argument. And when you hear this story, it'll sound a little bit more like the, the worry for Calvinists, for Reformed Christians, because um, the person who's doing the manipulating, if we can call it manipulation, is a goddess, And the goddess is someone who wants a particular event to happen in, say, 30 years. And in order to get that event to happen, what she does is she creates a zygote uh, and implants it in a woman that uh, Mealy calls her Mary. And uh, she knows because it's a deterministic world that she's creating this zygote in. She knows that this zygote will develop into an ordinary human agent. His name is Ernie. And she knows that in 30 years, Ernie will have the character and values that are required for him to perform 
a certain action that will lead to the event that she wants to happen. And so she does all of this. She creates the zygote in the way that she does at the very time that she does so that this event will take place. So Ernie looks, if he's not manipulated, he's at least designed to live out the life plan that Diana wants. Diana's this goddess. Um, so that this event that she wants to happen will take place. And again, I, th I think this will be obvious, but if you think that um, not only is God uh, aware of everything that's going to happen in the future, but is providential over all of what happens, maybe has decreed everything that will happen in the future, um, a more global version of this case would just be um, the, the God of reformed thought, right? Um, so the worry here is a lot of people, when they hear this story of, Diana and Ernie think Ernie is not morally responsible for performing the action 30 years after he's, his zygote's created. But there's no relevant difference between Ernie and ordinary determined agents, right? agents who are in deterministic worlds, but that weren't created by gods or goddesses. And so if you think Ernie's not responsible, no relevant difference between him and any determined agent, the no determined agent is responsible, which is to say free will is incompatible with determinism. So that's that's the manipulation argument, or at least one version of it. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Brandon. Uh, just like that story, intuitively, it doesn't bother me. Mm. Uh, to me, I'm like, so what? What? How does that make him not morally responsible in any relevant way? I'm just trying to think through, like, how do we, you know, how do we bring in like various like psychological states that people have before they make um a certain choice like you know um maybe this is similar to the second order desires that you're talking about but like um you know whether this be a brain state like something chemical or something that's going on in someone's brain or it be um you know a, a an affection they have for another person or whatever we, there's all kinds of desires that are going on in the background before someone makes a decision so it on, under a libertarian account of free will is all of that just just set us set aside and and does not matter at all in factoring in whether someone's choice is morally responsible because it seems to me all of those things actually do play into our moral judgments that we make about a, a choice that somebody is making so um is that is this making sense yeah that makes total sense yeah so, I, the the libertarian is worried to make sure that we um at least for the actions that we're directly uh, morally responsible for. So direct in the sense that it's not like our freedom and responsibility traces back to some earlier action. Um, a, a, yeah, an action that we're directly morally responsible for, according to the libertarian, is going to be one that isn't itself determined. It's an undetermined choice or action. And so they're thinking that yeah, it might be that there are lots of um, psychological features of the agent that maybe incline them one way or the other. But if the agent's really going to be free, you know, if, um, on the libertarian's view, it's going to have to be the case that holding all of those features of the agent fixed and holding fixed their environment and the laws of nature, everything up to that moment of decision, some other decision was possible for the agent. So, and that's partly because of this worry about, you know, that the consequence argument makes very vivid that, well, if determinism is true, that would preclude alternative possibilities. It seems like you need to be able to do otherwise to be responsible on most libertarian views. So what would that mean under a libertarian account? And maybe I'm just, I'm just not quite understanding it, that 
that when we're making a, a judgment about someone else, someone's moral responsibility when they make a choice, that we can't factor in any of those psychological states? Uh, no, I think they can make a difference. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, maybe it help, It would help to have a kind of concrete case before us. Imagine you're like making a decision about, you know, whether to exercise or whether to, to read more. This is mm-hmm. a decision that I make most days. Um, <laughs> whether you want to spend an hour running or, you know, reading something that you're interested in. Uh Maybe that's not a moral decision. Maybe it is. But in any case, um, you know, pick some morally salient decision. And um, for the libertarian, like it might be that there are um, aspects of the agent's psychology that incline them one way rather than another. But maybe they have reasons to do both. I think I have reasons to exercise. I think I also have reasons to read more than I actually read. So uh, you've got these competing reasons. And, you know, on most libertarian views, what matters is that uh, both courses of action are genuine options for the agent. They're really mm-hmm. you know, possibilities. And either way the agent goes, the action can be explained by features of the agent's psychology. So it's not that we just set aside the agent's psychology altogether. Um, it's just that it, the psychology has to leave open some alternative. It has to be that some alternative is possible. Whereas compatibilists have to say, no, no, no if you hold fixed everything about the agent their environment, the laws of nature. Um, it doesn't need to be the case that something else is possible for the agent, for them to be free and responsible. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the Frankfurt cases for me seem pretty persuasive on this front to where, like, I, you know, I can imagine all sorts of cases that that are sim- relevantly similar where you didn't really have another option. You didn't have an alternative option mm-hmm. and yet you're still morally responsible. So I, what I mean, can you give me what you think is the most persuasive argument in favor of the the principle of alternative possibilities? That's a good question. Um, for a lot of people, it's um, it's just so intuitively gripping that it it almost it doesn't really stand in need of uh, you know support or justification. It's just so intuitive. Um, Maybe the it, something that I could add, and you know, in some moods, I do find it, you know, gripping. I need to be convinced that it's false in order to see that it's false. But um, you know, a lot of people point to our practices of excusing people or of, um, you know exculpating them when we find out that they couldn't have done otherwise. Um, if if that's how it works, if we think that, you know, someone really doesn't deserve to be blamed when it turns out they couldn't have avoided the thing they did, I think that lends some support for, for PAP. It still seems that even in this scenario where you were forced to do something and you had no alternative possibilities, it seems that there is, in some relevant sense, a level of responsibility, even though you didn't have another choice, at least on my on my intuition. Maybe... Maybe you're not blameworthy to the point where you need to go to jail for X period of years or you need to be executed. But it still seems that even if you were sleepwalking when you murdered you know, some, your next door neighbor, there's still a relevant sense where you are responsible for that action. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go that far. I think um, 
in a Frankfurt style case where the agent doesn't have access to an alternative possibility, but yet seems morally responsible. What's interesting is the thing that's precluding alternatives, it, it isn't itself part of the actual sequence that leads to the mm -hmm. action. And so it doesn't really play a, a forceful or compelling role. Yeah, it's yeah. just sort of blocking, <laughs> blocking alternatives. Yeah. Um, the way that Frankfurt himself puts it, and and you you know your listeners that are interested in Frankfurt style cases really should read this 1969 paper. It's only like 10 pages. I just taught it last week in my intro to philosophy class, and it was great. Um, he makes this point near the end that what's what these cases he what he takes them to show is that what matters is the actual explanation of our doing what we do. If someone you know, an example that my uh, advisor, John Fisher, gave, gives somewhere, I forget where I read this, but one, one example of a kind of real life Frankfurt style case that he gives is imagine you're checking out at the grocery store and uh, the cashier says, do you want your groceries in paper or plastic? And you say, I'll take plastic. And then they say, oh, it turns out we were out of paper. So it's a good thing you chose plastic, right? You didn't really have the option of, do, of you know, getting the other. It's not exactly a perfect Frankfurt style case, but that kind of thing can happen in, in uh, real life. And in those kinds of cases, if, you know, the absence of an alternative possibility didn't explain why you did what you did, it wasn't like part of the reason that you did what you did, then it seems like it's not relevant to your responsibility. So I think in the sleepwalking case, it's, you can tell a plausible story that it's because you couldn't have done otherwise than murder your neighbor that that you did it and i think you that agent would be off the hook they're of course they're causally responsible they're the one that did it um that did that committed the murder or at least the killing i don't know that it would really be a murder in this case yeah um, you're right, right they're the one that did it and maybe they should be held liable maybe we ought to um there are certain ways of holding them accountable that don't presuppose that they really are blameworthy unless they maybe knew that this was a possibility and didn't take precautions, that would be a case where their responsibility traced back to some earlier failure on their part. But yeah, I think, um, you know, those kinds of cases and the case of coercion where, you know, the reason I give over my wallet is because I couldn't have done otherwise. I couldn't have reasonably been expected to take a bullet rather than give up my wallet. Um, in those kinds of cases, it's the absence of alternative possibilities, at least reasonable alternatives. And yet, um, it's, it's because of that, that I give over my wallet. And that's why I, I give over my wallet unfreely. I'm not really morally responsible for that. But in the Frankfurt style case, what's so interesting about them is, um, in Frankfurt style cases, it, the agent's lack of an alternative possibility in no way explains what they do. They're not even aware that they lack alternatives. And so that's what I think is, um, helpful for seeing the connection between, um, a kind of source compatibilist view and, um, these threats from determinism, but it also, you know, it applies to divine foreknowledge, even uh, kind of divine determinism. If it's not because God knew what you were going to do in advance or because the past and laws implied what you're going to do, if that doesn't, um, it's, that's not part of the reason that you did what you did, it's not going to bear on your responsibility. So that's a little bit more about my uh, source compatibilist view. I think from what I've read and heard th that challenge of the, the dilemma of freedom and foreknowledge seems to be fairly powerful and persuasive just to different segments of people, depending on what mm -hmm. they think, I guess, about God's knowledge, what they think about all the implications of that, of that scenario. 
And I know we had Roger talk about it back in the past. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in that, you can go listen to that episode. But I, I pulled out this paper and I, I don't know what, what you have to, this is totally off the cuff. So <laughs> feel free to punt if you want, but I've got this one page piece that Greg Welty gave me. And he basically says some philosophers such as Linda Zegzebski argue that Molinists get out of the free will foreknowledge dilemma by challenging what's called the transfer of necessity principle. So I th- think what it, the, what's that? The principle is essentially, where is it uh, necessarily? I don't, I don't mean, I'm not good at explaining the transfer of necessity principle. Are you yeah. better at it? You, you explain that. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can do it without getting too much into the, the details by saying it's that the, the sort of threat from divine foreknowledge is exactly parallel to the threat from determinism kind of formulated in the consequence argument. Yeah, so the, yeah. the consequence argument is like, well, if it's not up to you what the past was like or what the laws were like, and those things entail or imply what you do now, it seems like, well, what you do now isn't really up to you. The same kind of argument can be run with respect to God's um, foreknowledge. So yeah. God knew a thousand years ago that we'd be having uh, this recording session now and, um, that because God is infallible, right? His belief in the distant past, it, you know, entails or implies that we'll have this conversation now. So it seems like if it wasn't up to us what God believed a thousand years ago, it's not up to us uh, what we're doing now. So there is a kind of transfer principle underlying that idea, but um, that's the basic. Uh, yeah, no, th- and that's the, pretty much what he's saying. He's saying, look, this the the consequence argument that for libertarian free will is also grounding the plausible versions of this dilemma. So it seems that you, for him at least, you'd have to, you can't have them them both. It's not a dilemma if you accept the consequence argument. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, I'd have to think more about it. I'm not quite sure I see the point. But um, I will say this. There are people, perhaps the majority of um, Christian philosophers who think that the consequence argument is sound. It shows that incompatibilism is true. Uh, many of them are libertarians, not, not all of them. There are some free will skeptics among Christian philosophers, but uh, we, we can set those unorthodox folks aside for now. Um, among those libertarians, though, many of them are compatibilists about divine foreknowledge and free will. So they'll have to treat that argument differently. Uh, maybe because they think, whereas the past and the laws of nature aren't up to us, maybe God's beliefs are. You know, historically, folks like William of Ockham, um, even further back, Origen of Alexandria, and you know, more recently, there's. Uh, I think Roger uh, embraces this kind of view. If if God's beliefs, in some sense, depend on what we do, then we do, they are up to us in a way that the you know, the past state of the world and the laws of nature aren't. So maybe there's a way of treating the arguments differently. Um, since you mentioned Molinism, I will say um, Zygzebski and others, I think, are right to point out that while the Molinist usually presents their view as objecting to the, um, the sort of argument for incompatibilism about foreknowledge and freedom, there's no part of Molinism that it actually counts as a response to that argument. It just presupposes that the argument fails. And so the Molinist has to adopt some other uh, response to the argument, maybe Occam's solution or some other solution. That's helpful. Now, I'm curious, you studied under John Martin Fisher. Is he a Christian or theist in general? He is not. I think he is... um, 
I think he would say he's an atheist, at least agnostic, but he is um, very sympathetic to a lot of the concerns that Christian philosophers yeah. have. And, you know, many of his students uh, have been Christians. You know, I'm, I'm just one of several. Yeah. Um, so he was great to work with because he was interested in all the same things as me, even issues related to death and immortality. It, it was mm-hmm. a pleasure, you know, working with him. And we share a lot of views despite his uh, not really being a theist. Yeah. So what is what are his motivations for his views apart from theism? Because it seems, at least for me, a lot of the commitments that I want to make over here are influenced to a significant degree by my various Christian commitments. So if I just jettisoned all those, mm-hmm. um, what's what's making him think the way he's thinking on this compatibilist issue? Yeah, I think I think for the most part, it's it's the arguments and counterexamples, the cases that we've already talked about, I think he's pretty, I don't know that he would say that the consequence argument is sound, but he at least sees it as a pretty compelling argument that leads him to think uh, determinism might preclude the freedom to do otherwise. Um, Similarly, he's defended a version of the uh, argument for incompatibilism about divine foreknowledge and freedom, which leads him to think, well, if we're going to have freedom and responsibility, maybe we should focus on a source view rather than a, a leeway freedom to do otherwise view. And then, yeah, he's done a lot of work on Frankfurt-style cases and building a robust source-compatibilist account of freedom. Probably his most uh, widely read work is a a book from 1998 that he co-authored with uh, Mark Revisa um, called Responsibility and Control, where they lay out the most widely discussed version of a source-compatibilist theory. They focus on the idea of being responsive to reasons, how to make sense of that being compatible with determinism and with what's going on in a Frankfurt-style case. So for him, it's, yeah, I don't think there's theological motivation. Um, I think it really is just looking at the arguments and thinking about the cases. I think I might have taken us down a rabbit trail earlier. I don't remember if we actually got to your response to the manipulation argument. Did we do that? No, we didn't. Let's do that now then. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the, the, the responses to the manipulation argument come in two varieties. Lots of distinctions. This is good philosophy. There's, uh, you know, different camps and distinctions that we have to keep in mind. Um, These terms come from uh, philosopher Michael McKenna, um, but they can be uh, called the soft line and the hard line replies to the manipulation argument. Um, If you think of the argument as having two premises, the Ernie is not responsible premise, and then the no relevant difference between Ernie and determined agents premise, then the two responses deny the one of the two premises, right? And they're, they're divided on which premise to deny. So the soft line reply tries to agree that Ernie is not responsible, pro- probably because of the way that he was designed or manipulated by this goddess, uh, Diana. And so their um, approach requires pointing to some relevant difference between uh, agents who are designed or manipulated and then ordinary non-designed determined agents. And there are different proposals. Um, I myself am convinced that this strategy ultimately won't work. You know, interestingly, another philosopher that you've uh, interviewed and that you've talked about manipulation with a bit, uh, Guillaume Bignon, uh, he develops a kind of, you know, an interesting Calvinist softline reply to the manipulation argument where what matters is that our uh, character, you know, the capacities that lead to action are God-given. And in typical manipulation cases, the, the God-given character has been tinkered with or, you know, designed by some other figure like Diana. 
Um, so that's one version of the soft line reply that people uh, might be interested in. I think ultimately um, the hard line reply is is the way to go. And the hard, hard line reply says, no, there's no relevant difference between, say, Ernie and other determined agents. There's no relevant difference between agents in some kind of naturalistic deterministic world and a theistic deterministic world. And because of that, you know, and because I'm a compatibilist, I have to deny the first premise of the argument that says that Ernie is not responsible. So I have to say Ernie is morally responsible. And at least Jordan, it sounded like you were already attracted to denying that that premise from the get go. So maybe you're a, a hardliner like me. Um, but I think once you reflect on, you know, what could bear on the agent's responsibility, think about Ernie and his 30 year life, all the different capacities and actions that he's performed throughout the course of his life that led him to this um, action that Diana really wants him to perform, right? In terms of how much control he has, what seems up to him, what he's responsible for, he doesn't look any different to me than um, an agent in an ordinary deterministic world. And given that, I just think, well, run the argument, kind of flip the argument on its head. If uh, ordinary determined agents can be morally responsible, there's no relevant difference between ordinary determined agents and Ernie, then Ernie's morally responsible too. And that's a way of kind of motivating the denial of the first premise. Yeah, so that's a that's a hard line reply. Um, that's the way that McKenna himself goes, the one who introduced these terms. Uh, and I think he's basically right. Now, some people think that sort of increases the theoretical cost of compatibilism, because insofar as you were tempted to think that Ernie's not morally responsible, it seems like you're biting a bullet as a compatibilist to say, you know, actually he is morally responsible. And so one thing that I've tried to um, contribute to this debate, it's a relatively small point as part of my dissertation, is to say that even if this is a kind of theoretical cost or a bullet that compatibilists are biting, I think anyone who thinks that we're free, even if you're a libertarian about free will, uh, you're going to have to bite this bullet too. And so the way that I've argued for that is by saying you can, and this isn't totally original to me, there have been other manipulation art, uh, cases like this, but you, you, there can be indeterministic manipulation, um, cases where someone, maybe the, that nefarious neuroscientist is back and they're tinkering with someone's values and those values end up causing the agent's behavior, but in an indeterministic way, it still seems like, well, there's manipulation there. If, if manipulation is going to take away freedom and responsibility, it'll do it even in the indeterministic variant. And so uh, what I tried to do in the, this, in my dissertation, and um, it's now published as an article in the journal of the American Philosophical Association, but I've presented a case where I take various proposed libertarian conditions on freedom and responsibility. And I try to come up with this sort of master case, a scenario that's kind of like the Diana scenario. In fact, it in involves Diana and Ernie. I just make a parallel to this uh, case that we've been talking about, but where Diana builds in all of the libertarian conditions so that Ernie satisfies them, you know, at the time of action or throughout his life, if that's needed. And, you know, the, my point is basically, if you think that, um, the hard line reply to the original manipulation argument is a bullet to bite. If it's a theoretical cost, well, then for the libertarian responding to my argument, they're going to have to bite the same bullet, except the same cost. So it sort of levels the playing field. The idea is, you know, 
libertarians and compatibilists, they disagree on the issue of compatibilism, but they're at least united in thinking that we have free will. And my point was just to say, well, it seems like manipulation doesn't kind of, uh, it, it doesn't uh, preclude one of these possibilities. It's a cost that we all have to accept. At least that's my goal. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I, I've got no pushback. I agree. So nice. <laughs> I, the, I don't know what the first person who's had that response. <laughs> <laughs> Even my best friends who are either compatibilists or agnostics still think, well, maybe this isn't going to work. Really? I, yeah. I mean, I found it, I find it compelling. I don't know. Maybe we just share similar intuitions Maybe. and that's why, and, or maybe it's just because I'm not as smart on this topic as these other people are <laughs> either way. Uh, so I know, You've got several, I guess, resource locations, places, things that you're doing. Number one, I know you've got Twitter. Um, I know a lot of our listeners do that thing so they can follow you there. You've got a website. You've got a podcast, too. So maybe just tell me a minute about the podcast. What is it? What? what Who is it aimed for? Who might be interested in it? That type of thing. Sure. Well, and thanks so much for mentioning it. Um, the podcast is called The Free Will Show. And it's um, still pretty new. Started it during the pandemic, uh, summer of 2020, and uh, released our first season, fall of 2020. Um, the first season was just aimed at um, introducing the main issues in the free will debate for anyone who's interested. So we thought maybe some teachers could use it as a resource for their classes to teach the free will debate. Um, we have an episode on divine foreknowledge with uh, Linda Zixepski, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, we have an episode on the consequence argument with famous philosopher Peter Van Inwagen and, and several others, one on manipulation. Um, so the basic idea there was just to kind of, you know, make the, the free will debate more accessible to especially people that don't have aren't reading academic papers and books. Um, the second season, which has been coming out in the spring of 2021, um, it's kind of focused on free will and determinism in particular. And it's uh, each interview uh, with a philosopher uh, represents a different position in the uh, free will debate. So we, we have libertarians, like three or four different episodes on libertarian views of free will. We've got several on compatibilist views. We've got a free will skeptic uh, uh, episode and, and, and a few other kind of positions that don't fit neatly into those categories. Um, so that's what that season's aimed at. And the plan is to keep doing you know, 10 or so episodes as seasons at a time um, organized around some theme. We'll probably do one on free will and science at some point, probably do one on free will and foreknow divine foreknowledge, maybe one on free will and other issues in Christian theology. Um, my co-hosts, uh, Matt Flummer and I are both interested in Christian theology as well as the you know philosophical debate about free will. So okay. yeah, if you want to follow it, it it's, we have a, a Twitter handle for the podcast too, just the free will show and you know, Facebook group and even Instagram. And it, it, there's a website, the free So people can listen to it there, or, uh, download it wherever they get podcasts. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And I've listened to quite a few of them myself and I found them really helpful. I mean, you've got Thanks. serious philosophers on there trying to explain concepts that I think, um, I mean, someone off the street who's never heard of anything probably going to ha have challenge a challenge. Yeah. I think most of our listeners are familiar with basic, the basic level concepts. And I think they would be able to understand what's going on yeah. and be really helped by it. So I think I commend it to you. I think it's a great resource, especially if you're interested in the topic. 
I think you'd have a lot of fun listening. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I, I do think if you're if you've listened to this and kind of followed what I've been saying, you could jump into any episode that interests you. But we do have a couple of introductory episodes that even in more detail than I've gone into now, kind of lay out what free will is, how people are using that term and why we might care about free will and moral responsibility. So we tried to make it so that if you had no exposure before, you could just start at the beginning and work your way through. But yeah, I think if, if you're this far into this episode, feel free to jump in anywhere. Well, that's awesome. Well, Taylor, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, I think this has been a lot of fun, uh, helpful. I think Obviously, I think me, you, and Brandon kind of agree on this, so there wasn't as much like spicy takes as you might get somewhere else. You've done an interview on capturing Christianity, I think, with uh, somebody else where you guys debated a little bit. So if you want that type of interview, I guess go check that out. Um, I think you valiantly defend position. But anyway, oh, thanks. everybody's been listening. We thank you for tuning in. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.